place um, on other days of the week, and we became super, super close. This last December, I had the opportunity to go and see her as she became a legal adult. And my heart was like, oh, this girl who I've known since she was little is now a legal adult. And we spent some time talking and laughing and thinking about the things that we've gone through. We talked about the good and the bad. We've talked about the, the memories we had and the moments that led us to be in this mentorship relationship together. And it was moments that we had become one. We had become on the same track, the same mind. We had had one friendship. And this girl is my heart, and I love her very much. And it's been exciting to see her journey through that. Last week's sermon, Pastor Fred uh, brought us up to track, and we talked about manna. We talked about the grumbling of the Israelites. We talked about the bitter water. And Israelites had also become one, one loud voice of complaint. And I was going through and I was like, okay, I'm going to recap a little bit. And I just started laughing because I realized how much the Israelites complained. And I wrote it down because, so hear me out. So their complaints, excuses, or disgruntledness thus far that we've gone up to chapter 17. So we have Pharaoh complaining about the Israelite numbers. We have Pharaoh about the midwives complaining. We have the Israelites complaining about their slavery. We have Moses' excuses to God. The Israelites increased workload by Pharaoh. Moses to God about the increased workload. Pharaoh to Moses about the plagues. The Israelites to Moses about the plagues. And then Moses to God about the plagues. We have Pharaoh about the Israelites leaving. We have the Israelites about Pharaoh pursuing. We have the Israelites about no water. We have Moses to God about no water. The Israelites about no food or meat. And then Moses to God about no food or meat. Do you see a pattern here? It's like at every single turn, the Israelites complained. It didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter what the circumstance was. But they kept complaining. I'm like, do these people ever stop? I'm just curious. Like, do they ever stop complaining? Like, when is it going to happen where they stop and maybe just, like, take it in stride? Like, yeah, we can do this. But then I stopped for a moment and realized that that's me too. When something bad happens or something that I'm not okay with or I don't think should be that way, one of my first inclinations, whether I like to admit it or not, is to be disgruntled about it, is to complain about it, is to maybe... Be annoyed about it. And I was like, ooh, ooh, man, that's me. And I had a bit of a reality check in that moment. My sister Kelsey quotes this saying a lot, and I just love it to pieces. Um, And it goes something like this. She says, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. And if the Israelites had considered their blessing if they had stopped for a moment to check themselves, maybe they wouldn't be in the situation that they were in at that point. In our, in our time period, if we had considered or still consider the blessing that we are in in the time, maybe it's time we check ourselves before we wreck ourselves 
and realize that this is a great time for us to prioritize. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. So let's go ahead and jump right into the text. Like I said, we'll be in Exodus 17. We're going to start with verses 1 through 4, and I'll be reading from the NIV version, which it says, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sinai, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, again, and said to him, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children? And our children and our livestock die of thirst. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So we get to chapter 17, and they don't have water. They're thirsty. And what's the first thing they do? They complain. <sighs> the Israelites. Again, you're complaining. You just saw miracle after miracle after miracle. You got water before. Why are you questioning it now? And here I go again, checking myself. How many of times have I not gotten it? How many times have I complained over and over and over about a situation when it's outside of my comfort zone? And I'm wanting something else. And God's like, you just need to trust me. You just need to trust me. It's okay. And so I'm like, okay, beginning of chapter 17, they're complaining, great. It's the same as everything else. What's going to happen next? But something different happens in the second part of chapter 17. And it's the part we're going to be focusing on today because I think it's different enough that we need to acknowledge it that we need to recognize it, and we need to see what's going on here. So Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8, and it says, And the Amicalites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, in order to understand, like, who the Amicalites are, I think it's important to look at their history past this moment. And so when we look at them, we see that these are going to be a people that are going to continually attack Israel from generation to generation. See, these people not only are there to attack when Moses is there, but if we read more into the text, we find that they also attack when Saul is king, when David is king. And one of the last times that the Bible talks about the Amicalites is when Esther's queen and Haman comes at her with a vengeance. So the Amicalites, this is the first time we see them, are going to be a people that are continually breaking and coming down on the Israelites. And so what is the response? Exodus 17, verses 9 through 13. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amicalites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amicalites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. 
As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, excuse me, whenever he lowered his hands, they were losing. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on each side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Getting a little bit more information into this, we're going to jump over to Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 and 18, which says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind because they had no fear of God. And at this moment in time, you know what my expected response is? What are they going to do? They're going to complain. And yet, as I looked at the text, and we read the story, there's no complaining. We have Joshua and Moses and Aaron and her and the Amalekite army are the only ones mentioned. So where did all the complaining people go? Well, what we see is when under attack, the Israelites banded together. I mentioned earlier that our sermon title today is The Power of One. The power of one mindset. What we see here is the Israelites having one mindset, saying we have someone who's about to attack us and is attacking us. And we need to be of one accord. Do I agree with you about this lately? No. But we're one people, one family, one mission, and we have one common enemy. And no longer was it the situation or Moses or the lack of water. All eyes, all of a sudden, are turned to protecting what they love. The Israelites are checking themselves before they wreck themselves. And they have one enemy. And you and I, too, have one enemy. We have an enemy, and his name is Satan, the devil, and he likes to attack us. Like Deuteronomy says, when we're least expecting it, when we're tired and we're worn and we really don't want to deal with this, he attacks us. But do we care more about the situation that we're in, that we're so used to complaining about, more than the attack of the enemy? I don't think so. Because what I see when there's attacks on our church, on our family, on our faith, that we band together. At least that's my hope. My hope is that we check ourselves and we band together before we wreck ourselves. Now, I just want to take a quick moment and say that I'm not talking about this idea of unity. Unity is a completely different subject, which we're not talking about. Um, unity says that we have to agree. Um, but what I'm talking about is being one. Being one means I don't agree with you, but I'm still going to stand beside you and fight. Because we have a common enemy, and we're going to keep fighting. Unity begs for everyone to be the same, but becoming one is different. 
It's like in a marriage when you get married, no one expects the two of you to then become the same person. You still have your differences, you still have the things that are unique and quirky and adorable about you, maybe somewhat annoying sometimes, but no one expects you to be the same. But there's still one. When the enemy strikes, the power of one people becomes stronger than that of the individual. The power of one people, one mission, one mind is greater and more powerful than one person, one opinion, or one agenda. I'm going to say that again. The power of one people, one mind, and one mission is greater than and more powerful than one person, one opinion, and one agenda. And so we see this battle happening below. We have Joshua there, and we have Moses, Aaron, and her up at the top, and they're watching it. And I just love Aaron and her. Just take a moment. I just love that in, when they see that Moses is hurting, that he cannot do it, the first response isn't, oh, I got it. I'll take it from here. Let's see what they do instead. Exodus 17, verses 11 through 13. And we already read this, but we're going to read it again. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amicalites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it underneath him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amicalite army with the sword. Aaron and her saw no need to take over in this moment. Someone was doing and connecting with God. And when he got tired, they were like, oh, no, no, I got it. Let me take over. Like, you take a break. No, they came beside him. And they said, we are one people. We are on the same team, and we're going to do this together. I know I could probably hold it up for a lot longer, but what we're going to do instead is we're going to hold you up because you're connecting with God. So seeing the need to care on, carry on despite their differences, they continue with the power of one people to fight this enemy that has come. And so Moses holds up his staff, his rod, his shepherd's crook, whatever you want to call it. And this thing has gone through many circumstances. As we've already been through so far in the series, we've seen with Moses, we've seen him do a lot of things with this. And if we're not careful, it's very easy that we could say, wow, Moses, your staff is really powerful. It's a great weapon. But it's not the staff that had the power. When I'm talking about the power of one, I think it's also important to mention that we have one God, the power of one God. And we need to stop and recognize who and where our power comes from. Is it from the staff that's being held up, or is it from the God that is giving us that power? The power of one who has the power to change circumstances from going from winning 
to not so winning, to winning, to not so winning. A God in whom our life comes from. And one who deserves all the credit and glory. The power of one God. If there was ever a moment where I really feel like Israel had a right to complain or a right to be unhappy, it's when they're tired and worn and they get attacked. If there was ever a moment, I would say, you know, this one seems like a good one. But they don't. At least not that's recorded. It's one of the only moments that we see the Israelites stop, trust in God, and keep going. They step up to the plate, and honestly, I think this is the first time I haven't been disappointed with Israel up to this point in our series. It's just like, ugh, come on, guys. But this is the first time I think that they come together as one people, under one God. And they trust that God is in control. And I take a moment to check myself, and I'm like, when's the last time that I did that? When's the last time that I came into a situation, didn't like what was happening, and instead went, you know what, I trust you, you've got it, and I'm going to keep going? I'm ashamed to admit it doesn't happen as much as I hope it does. I'm ashamed to admit that I think the Israelites did something that I wouldn't have done in that moment. And they check themselves. Recently, I was talking to a friend, and um, they were talking about a difficult situation that they were in, and I asked them the question, well, have you given it to God? Or are you saying that you gave it to God, but yet you're still hanging on to it behind, behind your back? And I felt guilty asking them this because I knew that I was in the same situation with something completely different. And I was like, ooh, God, I hear you on my heart. Have I really given this to you? Have I given you the power to work wonders in my life? Have I given it to him because I know he can handle it? Or have I said I've given it to him thinking I can handle it? Why do I have the need to take over? And I asked that. But the Israelites, they check themselves, and thank goodness they did. The Israelites come together as one power, like I said, with one God, and they win the battle. Let's look at it. Exodus 17, verses 13 to 16. It says, So Joshua overcame the Amicalite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears about it. Because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because the hands were lifted up against the throne of God, and the Lord will be at war against the Amicalites from generation to generation. And so they win the battle. And they do two different things. They have the scroll and they have an altar. And we're going to start with the altar. If you read the scriptures at all, you know that the that altars were used quite a bit. In fact, they were used for sacrifices. They were used for monuments. They were 
used as a way to memorialize an event to give glory to God. We see this over and over. After the flood, Noah built an altar. After the promised land is given to Abraham and promised to him, in that moment, Abraham builds an altar. After Isaac digs a well and is told, you won't find water here, and he does, he builds an altar. When Jacob is reunited with Esau, what does he do? He builds an altar. And we see this over and over and over again throughout Scripture that there's an altar being built. And it's this way of focusing their attention on the power of one God. And although it's not in practice today, I don't really see altars being built around here in Tri-Cities, it's still something that I think we could take into account. Do we have something that, you know, we physically give God the glory to? Do I have something that I memorialize? You know what? You moved in this situation, God, and I'm going to honor that, and I'm going to recognize it, and I'm going to thank you for it, and I'm going to keep this as a memento so that we know. I'm going to challenge you guys, if you don't have a way of doing that, that you find a way to highlight events, to say, God, you moved in this area, and I am so grateful. You showed the power of one God. And so they write it down on a scroll as a way to remember it, as a way to pass down the information from generation to generation, but especially to remember an event. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, I think is my favorite of the entire story. And it says this, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it. Make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely block out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So why is it important that Joshua hears it? Is it because he fought the battle and so he wants, you know, God wants him to give him the credit? Like, ooh, look what you did. I don't think so. Remember earlier when I talked about my mentee? My one that's a legal adult now? <laughs> I think that God is doing something completely different here than just congratulating Joshua. What I see happening is I see that he's giving Joshua the tools for the future that he doesn't even realize that he needs yet. You see, this is the first time that scripture has talked about Joshua. This is the first time that we are introduced to him. And yet, what we find is that Joshua is the person who ends up being Moses' mentee. He's the one that ends up taking over Moses' ministry and actually taking the Israelites into the promised land. So what does God say? He says, make sure that Joshua hears what is written on the scroll. Make sure he hears it because he's going to have to deal with this and he doesn't even know it yet. There's something that I want him to remember. So you see, not just the power of one God and being powerful when it comes to winning battles, but we have a God that is so powerful that he sees our future and he sees what's ahead of us and he prepares us for it. He gives us the tools to get through the things that we're going to go through in the future. 
And there are moments where I'm like, God, why am I going through this? And then something happens later in life. I'm like, oh, I can relate to this person because you gave me this experience seven years ago. And we have a God that sees our future and he sees it for Joshua. He says, make sure Joshua hears this. Make sure that we write it down. And I've got to ask, what is God doing right now for our church? What is he setting up that we don't even realize yet? Like, what is he doing? I'm so excited to know and look back and be like, wow, we thought we were going through troubled times. We thought that this was awful space to be, and it was, it absolutely was. But God set us up so that we could encounter this thing over here that we would have never been prepared for if it wasn't for that experience. We have a God who sees and is the power of one. So after they built an honor, honoring one God as one people, we see that it is something holy that happens. There's no complaints that are registered here. It's a holy moment. It's a moment where they're hurt and they're tired, but it's a holy moment nonetheless to see what God has done. So not only do we have the power of being one people, the power of one God, but we have the power of one moment and how one moment can change the trajectory of everything. Last summer, I had the opportunity to work with my, my good friend, Pastor Kayla. Uh, it was an amazing experience. We were able to both be at Camp Myvidin and be a part of the Disciple Trek program. And Pastor Kayla shared when she was there um, a testimony or a moment that she had encountered with God, a holy moment. And I've asked her to share with us what this is. It's the power of giving him one. Let's go ahead and take a look. This is my friend, Pastor Kayla. a student missionary overseas on the island of Pompeii in Micronesia. And before I went out, I was really wrestling with my spiritual life and where I was at with God. And I was really debating whether it was the best decision to go be a Bible teacher and a chaplain and an associate pastor on an island where I wasn't even sure where I stood in my relationship with God at the moment. And I was at camp, and one night I was just really pouring my heart out to God and asking him, like, God, should I really go? Like, can I cancel my plane ticket? Like, you know, like, God, what, what is the purpose of this? And I was truly just pouring out my heart to God and, like, laying it all on the line because I was like, mm, it's in your hands. And in the stillness of that moment, I just felt like he said, Kayla, I just want you to give me one. And I was like, okay, God, what does, what does this look like? What does one mean? What do you want from me? And it translated to me as like, 
I want you to give me what one that you can. So whether that one is one second or one minute or an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, but ultimately that translates into giving God one life. So give him one to me means just giving God the opportunity to take what I am in my brokenness and for him to be able to have this unity with me and we can be in union together to where the message that I speak isn't my words, but it's his words and his power is able to then work through me. So give him one. Give him one. God is asking, are you willing to give me one? One moment. I know you're tired. I know you're worn. I know that this is the last thing that you want to do. But can you give me one? One moment? One day to fight this? Can you give me one year? Just one year. Can you give me one lifetime? One chance? The power of a moment has the chance to rock every other moment out there if we let it. And as the Israelites build an altar, they understand the power of one moment, of giving God one. And it says, Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, because these hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. And I invite you today, church, to lift your hands upon the throne of God. Isn't that just a beautiful image? Like, let's lift our hands to the throne of God. May we have the power in being one church under one God for one lifetime. I don't know about you, but that is a beautiful image to me. May we continue to support one another, not because we agree, but because we are one people. May we continue to worship one God not because he gives us what we want, but because he's asking and preparing us and taking us where we need to go. May we continue to step into one moment, giving him one, maybe even one lifetime with our God. Not because it's the moment that things are going our way, but because it's the moment that we align ourselves with God's way. The power of one has the ability to take us through life on the same page with both God and humanity. And while we may not agree between us still, we can press on our common enemy that we have. Together with God, we will come to that one holy moment of Jesus' return. We're tired and we're worn, but God wins. And that's the best news of all. Speaking of a win we had today, I'd like to invite Talia and Pastor Sergio up. And we are going to vote her in. How exciting is that? So go ahead and come on up.